Hey, Not Past It listeners. Have you been naughty or nice? Well, I hope you've been good because this holiday season, we're gifting you another historical domino effect. That's where we travel back in time and see how one moment in history topples over a string of events, bringing us to unexpected places. And in today's episode, we'll be looking north. Since noon today, we've been tracking an aerial object making its way across Canada. Our radar station in Alaska reported that the pilot was a jolly fat man. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. On today's episode, we'll find out how a 19th century obsession with the frigid Arctic snowballed into our mythology of Old St. Nick. We'll take a sneak peek into Santa's bag of toys, answer his personal phone calls, and track his sleigh across the starry night sky. The dominoes are all lined up, and we'll knock over the first one after the break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. All right. I'm very excited to introduce you to today's guest. She's an Emmy-nominated comedian, writer, and actor, Karen Chi. Hey! Hello! Hello! Karen is currently writing for season two of Apple TV Plus's Pachinko. Freaking love that. Oh my god, uh, (laughs) thanks! (laughs) And uh, she also writes for Late Night with Seth Meyers. She's also written for The New Yorker and acted in HBO's High Maintenance. Oh, just barely I did. But yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a credit. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome. Also, fun fact, Karen and I went to college together. Yes. But we don't have to get into that at all. (laughs) We can get into it really briefly, which is that when I was a freshman, you were a very cool upperclassman. We all looked up to you. (laughs) Okay. Stop. I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, Well, Karen. As you know, the holidays are upon us. Um, it's December here in New York. Mm-hmm. It's starting to get cold. So before we embark on our history domino journey, I'm just curious, what do you like to do to stay cozy uh, in the cold weather? Oh, man. You know, I just bought these. Um, I bought a pair of socks recently that are double Ooh. layered, and I've been referring to them as my evening socks because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so fancy. It's just regular socks, but um, maybe like 9 p.m. or so will roll around, and I— Take a little shower. I put on my socks, and I feel so cozy. Oh, wow. I also put on other clothes, but the socks are the key thing. I'm a big fuzzy socks person, too. I'm glad we have a shared affinity for the the warm sock. (laughs) All right, well, hold on tight to those cozy feelings, because we're lacing up our boots and stepping out into the icy Arctic. And we're starting with domino number one. Okay, so we're in Britain. Okay. It's 1845, Victorian era, so think parasols and petticoats. And I want to introduce you to a 59-year-old Sir John Franklin. He's a British Royal Navy officer who was also known as the man who ate his boots. What? (laughs) 
Yes. Wait, British Royal Navy officer. Okay, I'm just imagining Captain Von Trapp. This man <laughs> is handsome. Okay, carry on. All right, a handsome man who ate his boots. I, I'm curious, judging by his nickname, what type of work do you think Sir Franklin is involved in? Um, I would say a cobbler. Mm, a cobbler with a... Too much passion for shoes. <laughs> yeah. He, like, makes them and he goes, oh, my God, they look so good. Um, he was not a cobbler. Uh, Sir John Franklin was actually an Arctic explorer. Um, he got that nickname because he literally ate his leather boots um, while trying to survive starvation oh, wow. during an Arctic expedition. Wow. So this is a hardcore dude. Damn. Good for him. Yeah. Um, And he actually wrote a book about his escapades, which was an instant bestseller. In the early 1800s, people were fascinated by the North Pole. It was this place filled with mystery, you know, like, what is up there? Was it land? Was it open sea? Um, And at this point, people have known that the Earth is round for a while, but maps of certain regions are still pretty incomplete, especially for the Arctic where, you know, many explorers were getting lost or they'd come back with maybe just a few newly plotted islands. Ice was really the biggest obstacle in their path. This, however, does not deter old boot-chomping Sir Franklin. In 1853, he's preparing to return to the Arctic. Oh, man, this guy's nuts. Yeah, he's going back for more. Yeah. Do you have any guesses as to what he might have been looking for up there? Um... Okay, I have two guess, three guesses. Okay, okay. one, <laughs> one gold, mm-hmm. two dragons. Is this too recent for dragons? Um, and three, um, n- a nice woman to make his wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I think oddly enough, gold was the closest guess. Oh. All of that sounds much cooler than what he's actually looking for, which is the Northwest Passage. Oh. Um, And that was this theorized trade route from Europe to Asia through the Arctic. So in a sense, he thought perhaps finding that passageway could lead him to finding gold gold and and spices. Nice ladies. (laughs) Nice ladies. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, Sir Franklin was given charge of two ships, the Erebus and the Terror. They were specifically equipped for polar exploration, strengthened to withstand the crush of icebergs. Um, And these two vessels had just returned from successful expeditions to the South Pole. So, you know, at the start of this journey, it's like good vibes. All right, the ships, you know, the ships are vouched for. (laughs) The ships are really worldly, very (laughs) cultured. And on May 19th, 1845, Sir Franklin and his crew of over 100 men set off. Traveling north, they're seen taking a pit stop in Greenland to restock supplies. A few months later, their ships, anchored to an iceberg, are spotted by some passing whalers. But after that, they were never seen again. Oh my god. Do you think they're still alive? (laughs) (laughs) They're probably still out there eating more boots. Yeah. Well, we actually do know what ended up happening to them now, uh, which is that Franklin's ships were locked in Arctic ice for 18 months. Oh, my God. And sadly, the crew, along with Sir Franklin, perished in the icy north. Oh, geez. But at the time, their mysterious disappearance was a Victorian-era obsession. Yeah, totally. 
And back in England, Franklin's wife, he actually, he did have a wife. Oh, okay. Not to say he wasn't looking for other ladies. I don't know <laughs> yeah. his life story. Yep. Uh, but Franklin's wife, Lady Jane Franklin, was obviously quite distraught over her missing husband. So she calls for search parties to bring him back. Um, there are rewards posted for Sir Franklin and his crew's discovery. And for years, newspapers report on Arctic search expeditions that either get lost looking for Sir Franklin or come back empty-handed. So safe to say this Sir Franklin's mysterious Arctic disappearance was like the trending topic. Yeah, for sure. he must be their Amelia Earhart. <laughs> sort right? of, yeah, I yeah. think so. Interesting, I think so. yeah. I like that we got a female reboot of this guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you know, stories like Sir Franklin's only add to the allure of the North Pole. And this didn't just captivate people in Britain, but also in Russia, in Canada, in the United States. So as searches for Sir Franklin continue into the late 1800s, all this Arctic hype would catch the ears of a particular cartoonist living at the time in New Jersey and it would inspire him to start creating his own mythology about the mysterious icy north. And that leads us to domino number two. This is so fascinating. I'm glad you're into yeah. it. <laughs> All right, so we're still in the mid-1800s when this North Pole craze captures the imagination of a guy named Thomas Nast. Um, he's an American political cartoonist known for making iconic political images. For example, he was the first to use the elephant to represent the Republican Party. Oh no way! Yeah, big deal. Oh, man. Um, he also popularized the donkey for the Democratic Party. Wow. So really making the top 40 hits of political cartoons. Yeah, I will say two pretty bad animals to use, (laughs) but okay, good for him. Hates the two-party system, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you can blame it on Nast. But those aren't the only icons we can trace back to Nast. During the holiday season, he starts doing illustrations of Santa. And not only is he helping to shape our modern image of this jolly man— but also some of the mythology. So I'm going to pull up two illustrations for you, drawn by Thomas Nast. Here's the first one, a drawing Nast did in 1879 called A Christmas Post. Hmm. Now, can you describe uh, what you're looking at here? Yeah, um, it's a, I think it's a young girl in outside on a very snowy day posting a letter in a mailbox, and there's a toy store behind, and there's also a, a dog or a small bear next to her. Um, but yeah, it's it's snowing. It's very beautiful. Yes, a beautiful wintry scene. Now let's take a closer look at that letter that she's mailing. Can you read what that says? St. Claus? St. Claus. St. Yeah. Claus, North Pole. Um, and she's put a little stamp, but no return address. Yes. <laughs> Now, there's another cartoon that Nass did about five years later called Santa Claus's Root. And now, can you tell me what you're looking at here? Yeah, two little kids with their arms around each other tracing a path from what looks like the North Pole down to, I assume, their home. Yeah, exactly. Santa had not really been placed at the North Pole before. Um, And Nast, you know, he picks up on all of this Arctic excitement, all of those expeditions, you know, man who ate his boots. And he must have thought, what's a more magical, mystical place for Santa to live than the North Pole? Mm. 
This location sticks. People begin to recognize that Santa lives at the North Pole. And over the next few decades, we see the rest of Santa's image crystallize. Like Nast did illustrations for a poem by Clement Clark Moore called A Visit from St. Nicholas. But it's more commonly known by a different name. Any guesses as to what else this poem might be called? Um, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. <laughs> not quite. Uh, um, not quite. Is, it, is it the one where it's like, and all through the night, not a minute of us, not even a mouse or yes. something like this? Yeah, why, yes. Why can't I remember the words? Also known as, Twas the Night Before uh, Christmas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this makes sense. This makes sense. You kind of got it. Do you, do you feel like you, do you remember the opening lines? It, it, does it start with, Twas the Night Before Christmas, starts, and all yes. through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse? There you go. Lamo, yeah. Um, now, here's one of Nast's illustrations for the poem. Can you describe it for us? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so it's clearly Santa Claus, and he's in an orange-red suit jacket and um, big beard flying through the sky on a sleigh with reindeer. This feels like a very modern idea of Santa Claus. Right? It's, like, very recognizable. He's got the big beard. Yeah, you know. yeah jolly face Mm -hmm. flying over a village so this is like um a proto santa and you know there are other artists contributing to santa's image too illustrators painters um norman rockwell paints santa uh for the cover of boy scouts magazine boy's life whoa really yeah lots of so lots of different people are sort of like helping shape Santa, he's mm. getting a bit of a glow up, you know, as the years go on. He's getting hotter and hotter. <laughs> and soon we'll have the hottest Santa. Yeah. Um, and so over time, we're really seeing a transformation from a gift giving Santa to a gift selling Santa. <gasps> Capitalism. Capitalism. Capitalism is what leads us to domino number three. Who better to sell gifts than the expert toy maker himself? In advertisements, he's selling you ham, chocolate, jewelry, socks, even cars. Um, And there's one ad in particular that I wanted to show you, Karen. Okay. Can you tell us, what is Santa trying to sell us uh, in this this ad here from 1915? Oh my gosh, Turkish cigarettes. But more importantly, I think he's trying to sell sex. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about the hottest Santa. Yeah, wait, is this Life magazine? Is that what's going on? It looks like it, yeah. Oh man, yeah. I mean, describe Santa's uh, expression here. (laughs) I'm going to say like cool guy smirk um, mm-hmm. while he is puffing a cigarette. Um, yeah, kind of a seedy looking Santa, I'll be honest. Yeah. 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 So Karen, mm-hmm. can you think of any other products that Santa might have been an ambassador for? I think I know the answer to this. Mm-hmm. I think it's Coca-Cola. It sure yeah. is. It sure is. The iconic Santa X Coca-Cola Christmas collab. Um, so Coke, they wanted to make their drink a popular option during the cold months of winter. Mm. So they come up with this idea of Santa as spokesperson, and they create a bunch of very memorable ads. And by the 1930s, you can see that there is a fully formed Santa. We're going to pull up an image of one for you. 
Could you describe the Santa that you see in this image? Yeah, very jolly guy um, with a big beard and wearing a red suit holding a, a little glass of Coke. Um, you know, it's I feel like this Santa, you start to really see like, oh, yeah, they're like this is definitely the Santa that I know, that I recognize. And he's no longer just a cartoon on a page. It's almost like Santa is real in the flesh, living and working in the North Pole. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1955, Sears Department Store jumps on this bandwagon, or should I say this band sleigh, <laughs> uh, with their own Santa ad. And this ad will end up leading to a pretty big mishap. Don't worry, because in classic holiday story fashion, it will also end up sparking a brand new Christmas tradition. And we'll get to that after the break. Magical! I love this. All right. Welcome back. So before the break, we went on quite a journey. Karen, do you think you could give us a little recap of what we've learned so far? I can. Um, Okay, so in uh, Britain in 1845, there was a man named Sir John Franklin who was an Arctic explorer, went by the nickname of the man who ate his boots. Sure did. Um, And he went to the North Pole and got lost and never returned. And that led to an obsession with the North Pole. Then uh, there was a guy named Thomas Nast, who was a cartoonist in the U.S., who, inspired by this, started drawing um, not only donkeys and elephants, but ideas of what could be up in the North Pole, and he placed Santa Claus there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And then Santa got really popular and was not only bringing gifts to people around the world, but was um, starting to get used in ads to sell things. And now the biggest endorsement deal he's gotten uh, is Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah. Santa has some good agents. Yeah, he does. Yeah. They're getting a big check. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, great. Fantastic. Thank you. I've been really paying attention. I don't know yeah. if you've noticed. No, okay. I'm, I'm you're very, yeah, you're a very good student. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I'm trying my best. <laughs> well, our commercial Santa made his way down from the North Pole and now finds himself doing business with department stores. Wow. Uh, one of those department stores being Sears. And that leads us to domino number four. Now, if you remember the heyday of malls, you'll remember the absolute power of department stores. Uh, Like there was Macy's, JCPenney, and the holy grail, Sears. Do you remember Sears, Karen? Do you know Sears? Yeah, I can see the logo in my mind, but I didn't know they were so big. Sears opened their first stores in 1925, uh, but they built their business before that with mail order catalogs. In their heyday, they basically sold everything you could need, from towels to tractors to appliances, even whole houses. Oh, my God. Yeah. One of our producers actually grew up in a Sears house. A Sears house? house? (gasps) That's incredible. Oh, my goodness. So Sears was in the house business. Um, But in 1932, Sears introduced their Christmas wish book. Advertising everything a kid might ask for from Santa. So rocking horses, baby dolls, even live canaries. 
They had a bunch of other Christmas traditions, too. Like, they'd turn a whole floor of the store into Toyland, oh. and they'd host Santa himself in stores. Wow! Ho, ho, ho! Um, this was actually, lots of department stores did this, um, so kids could go and tell Santa what they wanted I did in person. This. You did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like this is still happening now, right? A mall I'm, Santa? I think mall Santa's still a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to be a mall Santa someday. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Well, what's stopping you? I, you know, that's a really good question. I'm doing that <laughs> as soon as this podcast wraps. What do you remember from visiting uh, mall Santa? I remember there was always a very long line. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I was so excited to meet him. <laughs> Do you remember asking for anything in particular? No, I don't know if I ever asked for anything. I think I was just really excited to meet him. <laughs> Probably just... was like, I hope you have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet. Yeah, That's very what about cute. You? Um, you know, I remember seeing Mall Santa when I was like, I was like, old like too old I was like maybe 12 but my sister was still like you know five or six or whatever so I remember going with her and being like yeah I'm just here for my kid's sister yeah like I'm gonna go to Claire's after this or yeah. whatever oh Claire's so cool like <laughs> getting your ears pierced um the problem with mall Santa is what do you do if you don't live near the mall if you don't live near a Sears store oh, you're kind of out of luck yeah So in 1955, Sears in Colorado Springs came up with the next best thing, and they posted an ad in the local paper, which I'm going to pull up for you now. So you've got an image of Santa here in black and white and a bunch of text around him. Uh, And can you read for us what it says? Yes, it says, Sears, hey, kiddies, call me direct on what? Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> I promise, for listeners, I promise I can read. It's just all jumbled. It's a graphic design issue. Yeah, you know yeah. what? You're right. It's designed <laughs> badly. At the bottom, it says, call me on my private phone and I will talk to you personally anytime, day or night, or come in and visit me at Sears Toyland. Signed, Santa Claus. There's also a little bit of uh, small text on the side there. It says, kitties, be sure and dial the correct number. Now, remember that, Karen, because this is going to come back up. Oh, no. And somewhere on a desk, a red phone starts to ring. But the call won't be reaching Sears Toyland or Santa. On the other line is our fifth domino. Stop, I'm so scared. Domino number five. You should be. Stationed in Colorado at the Continental Air Defense Command, or CONAD, Colonel Harry Schaup sees his red phone ringing. He was in the U.S. Army Air Corps, served in World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, and perhaps the ringing red phone is alarming because it's reserved for national emergencies. (gasps) Only he and one other person, a four-star general at the Pentagon, should have this number. CONAD, the organization Colonel Schaub worked for, their job was to track the skies for flying objects. Now remember, it's the 1950s. We're in the midst of the Cold War and a nuclear arms race with the USSR. So you can imagine how ominous it must have been to see that phone ringing. Yeah. And we have a clip here of Colonel Schaub himself. But that, that red phone, I was all shook up. I thought, what is this? So that's from a 2009 interview with an at-the-time retired Colonel Schaup. 
he's back to work now. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, so Colonel Schaup, he picks up the phone. Yes, sir, this is Colonel Schaup. Sir, this is Colonel Schaup. Instead of a four-star general, he hears the voice of a child. Are you really Santa Claus? And I looked around my staff. I thought, somebody's playing a joke on me, and this isn't funny. So that's what started it. Yeah. So. That's so cute. <laughs> so Shab's on the phone with this little kid, and the little kid starts to get upset, you oh. know, which I can only imagine. You think Santa Claus is going to pick up, and it's yeah. this, you know, military old guy. dork, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Colonel Schaub, you know, he has kids of his own. He's like, well, let me play along with this. So he does his whole, you know, ho, ho, ho routine, like I'm Santa Claus. Um, and he asks to speak with the kid's mother. And that's when he finds out about this Sears ad. Now, there's different versions of this story. Some say Sears misprinted Santa's number and that so many kids called into the command center that Schaub enlisted a bunch of his staff to also play Santa. Uh, but then we found a newspaper article that suggests it was just one kid who simply misdialed. Oh. But, you know, either way, That's Colonel really Schaub sweet. was leaning into the holiday spirit. Yeah. Um, and he did so much so that he decided to call into a radio station and report an unidentified flying object. Oh, stop. That's so sweet. Yeah, a sleigh. Wow. Um, and Conad, by the way, then becomes the North American Aerospace Defense Command. Oh. Or NORAD. And over the next decade, the Santa operation snowballs into radio announcements and reports each year tracking Santa. Okay. This uh, is adorable. It's very cute. Here's a clip from 1968. We're getting reports now that Santa seems to be in many places at once. Santa's on his way, safely escorted through our defense radar lines by jet interceptors under the control of the North American Air Defense Command. I love this. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's really sweet how they like lean into like all the mythology. And I'm wondering, did your family like create any mythology around the holidays for you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was really into Santa. I also just was so gullible that <laughs> I believed in Santa until I was like quite old, you know? How and old is quite old? I want to say like 10 or 11. <laughs> okay. That is actually very reasonable, Karen. <gasps> Do you think so? I <laughs> well, feel I like... was 10, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, my parents were really into it and I, there was, um, I think one of my dad's coworkers had really great handwriting. And so my dad would always have this person write a letter from Santa oh. to me every year. And it would be very loopy and cursive and beautiful. Fully believed it. Wow. Your parents, like, really committed. They really did. Wow. Oh, man. What about you? That's really sweet. Man, I mean, we did all the cookies, um, oh, you know, sweet. the milk and cookies. and. Definitely, like, brought my sleeping bag to the living room a few years to, like, wait up for Santa. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Man, yeah, good times. <laughs> good, good, cozy feelings. Yeah. Well, you know, NORAD still tracks Santa every Christmas Eve. And here's a clip of that from last year. NORAD radars have sensed movement near the North Pole. It appears that the elves have finished loading Santa's sleigh, and Santa has lifted off. This is, I really love this. This has made my whole day. Yeah. Who knew Santa had such a tight relationship with the military? <laughs> He's part of the military industrial complex. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Karen, we've embarked on quite a journey today. We've seen how the unknowns of the North Pole were weaved into Santa drawings by a political cartoonist, how artists in corporate America shaped our image of Santa, and how a Sears ad sparked the tradition of NORAD tracking Santa's sleigh. Yeah, I love that. It's actually really sweet when you think about how many people are trying to put in effort to have kids believe in this very special, cute thing. That's very heartwarming. Well, um, before we go, do you have any final words of Christmas cheer you'd like to impart on our listeners? Oh my gosh. Well, I just want to say happy holidays. And I really want to emphasize that I can read and that the graphic design (laughs) on that poster was truly terrible. Graphic designers from the 50s do better. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, happy holidays. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. What a joy. Um, And maybe just before you go, I thought we could... uh, try to leave our audience with our best ho 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 okay what do you think listen i'll try my best (laughs) okay i'll do it with you how about that in our best santa voice in our best santa voice. i got you yeah all right ready three two one ho 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 merry christmas I think we nailed that. Yeah, wow. that sounded really gorgeous. Tim Allen's out, and it's Karen, and Simone is the new Santa. <laughs> Me on your shoulders. <laughs> Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Nick Del Rose. Next week, meet me in St. Louis because we're uncovering the city's most famous and controversial high society event, the Veiled Prophet Ball. The whole event from that point on felt to me as though we were zombies performing a ritual that was already dead. The rest of our team are producers Olivia Briley and Ramoy Phillip. Our associate producer is Laura Newcomb. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Zach Stewart-Pontier. Andrea B. Scott is our executive editor. Fact-checking by Ian Michael. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton. Technical direction by Zach Schmidt. Show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at CSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, Ariel Joseph, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. If you had access to Santa's phone number, Karen, what do you think you would call him up for? Um, I feel like because people are always telling him what they want, I would call and be like, what do you want? What can I do for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, And then I think if he wanted something, you know, that was too big, I would be like, okay, let's not get cocky. (laughs) (laughs) 